I am Austin Lugo. I am Brendan S. And this is the Nom Nom Project. So Brandon, as our usual week in review, the first question is for you. How do the Vietnamese people feel about Ho Chi Minh? There's a generational divide between views on Ho Chi Minh, like with many politics, especially in the United States, where the boomers have very different politics from millennials and Zoomers. There's a similar kind of split in Vietnam where the older generation tend to have very favorable views of Ho Chi Minh, whereas the younger generation are completely alienated from Ho Chi Minh. In Vietnamese culture, there is the understanding of communism as an ideology and a politics, and there is a connection between that ideology and Ho Chi Minh as the creator of that ideology in Vietnam. But for the Vietnamese people, Ho Chi Minh isn't just a communist because he was also the guy who organized the movement to declare independence from France. And he was the supreme leader over the military when fighting the United States. So most people conceive of Ho Chi Minh not as a communist first, but as the defender or father of the country first. And that's in the older generation. The newer generation, it's not as cut and dry between his politics and his duty to the country, because none of those people were actually alive when Ho Chi Minh was. So generally, the opinion seems to be lukewarm, similar to how like Americans might see George Washington. Yeah, I mean, he was a guy, but that was hundreds of years ago now, so who really cares? I mean, that's kind of the vibe you get from young people in Vietnam today. But I imagine he's in like the educational system, he's kind of sold as a George Washington, Abraham Lincoln kind of hero sort of thing. Is that true? Yeah, there's probably a little bit of misleading information there. They try to sweep some of the bad stuff he did on the, the rug. Like, you know, obviously the Communist Party rounded up people when they were doing land reforms and shot a bunch of people. And then there were all of the war crimes that were committed during the Vietnam War. And Ho Chi Minh obviously isn't blamed for any of those in Vietnam, though his responsibilities probably you know, a little more than what the government would have you believe. No different than what any government does. I mean, here in America, no one talks about the slaves of George Washington or Thomas Jefferson or the fact that Abraham Lincoln, when he was campaigning in the South, he's like, we're not going to free the slaves. Like, don't worry, guys. So <laughs> it's expected. I mean, you'd wish that it wasn't necessarily the case, but par for course, I suppose. I think most people in Vietnam kind of understand that Ho Chi Minh wasn't a perfect person, though. Well, everyone these days is disillusioned from their government. That's just how modernization works. But especially if you're in Vietnam, I think even if you have a favorable opinion of Ho Chi Minh, you're still able to recognize that he did some bad stuff too. So moving on, the next question was for me. It was on the infrastructure of Vietnam. Unfortunately, like a lot of the countries around the world, even including the United States, infrastructure is seriously lacking it's something that for some reason countries just don't want to put money into i think because the immediate benefit is hard to see it takes a lot of upkeep the price is exceptionally high so in vietnam only 30 percent of the roads are paved which when you're talking about a country that's full of mountains and jungles that's still impressive in its own right and because it's only been the last 30 years really since the doi moi that these paved roads have even been built in a lot of these places so it is impressive in one sense but 
when 80% of Vietnamese people own a motorbike, you know, when almost every single family owns a motorized vehicle, you would think they'd kind of get on this whole paved road situation. They haven't yet. Obviously, the big cities, Ho Chi Minh and Hanoi and the other big cities, all paved roads. But really, once you get out of the cities, it's problematic, which is unfortunate because, of course, like always, the people who suffer the most are the poorest and the farmers. And it's something I think they should look into. The Viennese government originally proposed a high speed like railway that would go all the way from Hanoi to Ho Chi Minh. It was supposed to go up to like 200 miles per hour. And it was originally proposed in 2004, 2005. And they're like, this is great. We're going to do it. And they're like, great. It's only going to cost us $60 billion. And they're like, oh, fuck no. We're not going to do that. <laughs> so they pushed it back. And they're actually in talks to restart it recently. They just built a metro system and still are building a metro system in Hanoi, which is the first metro system in Vietnam. It has 12 stops which isn't bad. It's all above railway. It's not like a subway. It's more of like uh, the L in Chicago. It's very similar to that. They're trying to expand it beyond just Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh City is supposed to start building one in 2022. But just like all those kind of infrastructure projects, it's hard to convince people, especially when it comes to public transportation, because there's not as much money in public transportation as there is cars and especially motorbikes, because Vietnam is actually ranked third in the world for the amount of motorbikes bought per year. Like, people in Vietnam just fucking love their motorbikes. They're everywhere. Everyone's got a motorbike. Which makes sense, because those are pretty good for off-roading, and they're relatively cheap. And the other thing is that cars in Vietnam are taxed higher than almost anywhere else in the world. So if you were to buy a car in Vietnam, it costs, like, almost twice as much as it would to buy that same car in China. Because they have, like, a ton of, like, import taxes and sales taxes. Partly because they don't want to build the infrastructure for those cars. I mean, the United States was built for cars because you know it was basically funded by these boards and other large car companies there's not really any car companies based out of vietnam there are a couple small motorbike companies that are so there's just really not a lot of movement in that direction so if you ever move to vietnam you're probably going to end up unless you're importing your car there which sounds relatively comp i guess i don't i don't know i guess if you live in china or like one of the landlocked places you could like just drive your car over but you're moving from outside of there it's probably gonna be pretty hard to get a car so you might want to look into a motorbike or something they also don't have a bus system at the moment they kind of talked about doing a bus system at some point but with not a lot of paved roads it's not something they've looked that far into really the best hope is the metro system they are supposedly going to start building the high-speed railway this year 2022 but i mean they also said they're going to build it in 2005 so who knows well, let's hope they get on that because uh, high-speed rail is based. Very cool. Had similar projects brainstormed here in the United States a couple of years ago, but obviously that's never going to go anywhere, especially with how expensive high-speed rail is. Yeah, I find it interesting that they're using so many motorbikes uh, because of how dangerous motorbikes are, frankly. At least twice as dangerous as using a car. So it surprises me that that would be the vehicle of choice for the Vietnamese person. At the same time, I guess they probably don't have much of a choice. If you're not making very much money, you can't really even afford a car to begin with. And motorbikes are exponentially cheaper. It makes me wonder what an average day in Hanoi looks like with all the traffic. If it's mostly motorbikes, that's got to be 
both very loud and very chaotic all of the time. I'm surprised there's not more biking being done. If there's a lot of motorbikes, that means that roads are probably designed with the intention that they're going to be used with motorbikes, which would lend itself to regular bikes. And maybe there is a lot of biking being done in Vietnam, but uh, I haven't really seen any numbers on that. Yeah, I don't know about the biking rates in Vietnam. Like when you're talking about the big cities like Ho Chi Minh and Hanoi, there are definitely more cars than there are in other parts of Vietnam. But if you look at like videos or pictures of a lot of the streets, they're just like packed with tons and tons of motorbikes just everywhere, which also makes it a sort of dangerous city to drive in because the laws on uh, motorbike driving, just like here in the United States, is not very well fleshed out. So there's a lot of weaving in and out of traffic, which isn't the greatest. But I mean, I wouldn't drive a motorbike in Vietnam, but I get that, like, if that's your only option, obviously you'd pick it, especially because I was reading somewhere like the cost of a car in Vietnam is like three months rent, which I guess here in the US, it's still obnoxiously expensive, right? To get a, I mean, even a used car, you're talking ten to $15,000, which is multiple months rent, but it's just... They cost too much money. <laughs> the U.S. allows most people to finance because everything's backed by credit here. But I imagine that's a lot harder in Vietnam, both because they're communists, so their banking system isn't as robust, and also because the people are so dirt poor that they wouldn't have good credit anyway. So it makes it difficult to get the public to have a bunch of cars. And frankly, why would you even want that, to be honest with you? I don't think car culture has done anything good for the United States. and for to reach net zero emissions, we certainly can't be building more cars. We got to be getting rid of them. So, did you do any research into other forms of travel? Like, are there boats you can take? I know there's a lot of rivers in Vietnam. I'm wondering if that's a popular way of getting around if you live in those kinds of areas. You know, when I was reading up on infrastructure, I go to my classic googlescholar.com and read up on a bunch of different articles and studies, and I honestly couldn't find anything on electric boats, gas-powered boats. I'm sure, like in the smaller towns, especially around paddy villages, they would travel by boat all the time, but I couldn't really find, maybe just because there's not a lot of money in it, and so no one wants to do any research on it, and I know there's a lot of tourism around like boating in the country so you could travel by boat if like you want to look at paddy fields or caves or things like that but as far as like day-to-day -day travel i really didn't see all that much all right moving on the ho chi minh trail what's that all about brandon so the ho chi minh trail was essentially a supply line network it was like a logistical thing for the vietnamese military and the idea was originally that they were going to use a bunch of trade routes that were already established in the area and sort of industrialize them or expand them to be a lot larger. The idea was that because it's so far into the jungle and so hard to access, the enemy wouldn't be able to disrupt it very much. This was before they conceived of the United States being able to fly jet bombers around. But... It worked really well during the independence war with France. They were able to carry out guerrilla attacks all over the country with relative impunity because once they were done with their attack, they could just retreat into the jungle to the supply lines they knew were there and then resupply and, and hold out. And the French couldn't really do anything because you can't see jungle. like You can't cut off supply lines unless you 
just like destroy the entire country. But, you know, even the United States tried that and they couldn't really destroy the whole jungle. So yeah, it was essentially a network of trade routes that they cut out and made a lot bigger, made some depots during the French Independence War. And then when the war with the United States came, it was expanded even further. They started paving the roads back there. And a lot of that was done with help from Russia and China. Most of the industrialization of the country actually came from Chinese support. They lent a bunch of pavers and motorized vehicles and, and other equipment. The trail got very big, and eventually the United States figured out that the uh, trail existed. So there was a deliberate effort to try to destroy it with napalm and other kinds of bombs. But the original strategy of the trail, which was to hide it in the jungle and make it too difficult to access actually worked really well. The United States were able to damage it at points, like they destroyed well over a thousand trucks by the end of the war, but they weren't able to ever prevent the movement of supplies for any period of time. So most of the trail doesn't exist today, unfortunately, because it was just like dirt paths in the jungle. But there's part of it, I believe, on that little part of Vietnam between the north and the south, where the country gets really thin. I think the trail runs really close to the coastline there, and they ended up making part of that the Ho Chi Minh Highway. So you can technically drive on part of it, but it's not the original trail. And there are hiking tours you can take to go to where the trail was originally located. The other interesting thing about the trail is that because most of it's deep into the jungle, um, it's actually technically in Laos. So in order to establish the trail, the Vietnamese actually had to invade Laos. They didn't like go in and destroy the entire country. It was mostly just like they were doing raids on military outposts that were in the region because there was essentially no one there before the Ho Chi Minh Trail was created. It's like deep, uninhabitable jungle out there. It is technically an invasion. Really, it's just they're occupying an area that was previously occupied by Laotians. And that sounds like apologetics, and it kind of is, but... There's a deliberate attempt to militarize the trail, and that was always the intention from the beginning. So you said there's sort of, not necessarily historic landmarks, but you can, like, hike on parts of the trail still? From what I understand, there's, yeah, tours you can take to go to parts of it. The main segments of the trail are overgrown by this point, because, again, they were in Laos. So once the war ended, the Vietnamese pulled out of that region. And if you're not upkeeping something very deliberately in the jungle, it's just going to become jungle again. The trail was connected to the famous tunnel system that the Vietnamese used, and parts of that tunnel system still exist. So if you wanted to go and see how the average Vietnamese soldier was living, because they didn't typically live on the trail, they would live like in bunkers and in tunnels that would shoot off of the trail and only have connection to it to get supplies ran back and forth. If you wanted to see how the average soldier lived, you could go tour those tunnels, I believe. Well, kind of jumping off that, talking about country relations, the relations between Cambodia and Vietnam are vast, bloody, and very complicated. Since they're right next to each other, they had been trading for thousands of years. But in the 1120s, you basically had this nationalist Cambodian who's like, I don't want these Vietnamese people here anymore. 
there wasn't a whole lot of good reason. He uses the classic argument that we still use today that foreigners are taking our jobs and something about the economy, blah, blah, blah. You know, just blaming on other people. Classic scapegoating stuff way back in the 12th century. And so he's like, we're just going to put an embargo on Vietnam. If you are here from Vietnam, you have to leave and you can't sell your shit anymore. Well, Vietnam obviously was pissed about it, but they're like, whatever. We'll just go back to Vietnam and we'll simmer for like 400 years. Just like sitting there and just letting it fester. Just really pissing them off. And... In the 16th century, so around 1500s, 400 years go by, Vietnam's like, we're fed up with this shit, so we're just gonna invade Cambodia. Cambodia's gonna be ours now, because we're pissed. We want to trade with them, and they won't let us, and we've been festering for 400 years. So they invade, murder a bunch of Cambodians, as all invasions typically do, take over a large portion of Cambodia, not all of Cambodia, but take over a large portion, and then... Over the next 300 years, they Vietnamize the country. It's very similar to what the quote-unquote Americans did to the natives when they came to the U.S. They even referred to the Cambodians because they were tribes as barbarians, which the Greeks did it, the Romans did it. Basically anyone who doesn't like anyone else, they just call them barbarians. The Vietnamese people would re-educate children, women, men into becoming Vietnamese, which, you know, not great, not, not, not something you, you want to be doing. That is a form of cultural genocide, so, you know, obviously not the most uh, moral thing. And so this goes on for a while. Cambodia gets pissed, for obvious reasons. So they fight back, they grab some land in the 18th century, they side with, well, actually what happens is in the 18th century, France comes along. And they're like, this is fucking ours. Like, fuck you guys. So they take over Cambodia. And Cambodia is like, we want to be free. And the French are like, yeah, you want to be free. Here's all this money. Go fight the Vietnamese. So the Cambodians go fight the Vietnamese. And then the French just end up taking over both places, giving no one freedom. Classic colonial move. That's the thing the Romans did to invade Greece. They sided with certain Greek powers to uh, start a war. And then once both sides were weak, they came in and invaded. It's quite smart, really. Shitty, but smart. <laughs> it goes two ways. So the French are then there, and Cambodia's like, wait a minute, you said we we're going to be free, and the French are like, shut the fuck up. So then Vietnam gains independence. When Vietnam gains its independence, Cambodia quickly gains its independence after that, because French basically pulls back on all its colonies, because it's not doing well. And then Vietnam is like, you know what we need? We need our independence. 1940s are coming along. The official Vietnam War has begun. But they're like, the only way we're going to do that is strategically we need land that's in Cambodia. So they invade Cambodia again. They take over land. The north invades Cambodia. They take over land. And Cambodia is like, look, you're going to take our land. It's not cool. But what we'll do is we'll do the classic U.S. thing, which they did in World War I, World War II, which is we'll just trade with both sides. We'll trade with North Vietnam, but we'll also trade with South Vietnam because then we get twice the money. And their thought is, you know, whoever wins, we're going to be on the right side of history. They're going to give us our land back. It's all going to be cool. Unfortunately, both North Vietnam and South Vietnam invade Cambodia. So it doesn't really work in Cambodia's favor. And the Vietnam War ends and Vietnam now has this land. And in 1975 or 76, they go to like some UN thing i can't remember what's called it's like some u.n meeting basically you know it's those classic u.n meetings where they figure out who gets what 
and they end up siding with Vietnam. So Vietnam ends up getting land that was traditionally in Cambodia over like 81,000 kilometers. And Cambodia has not been happy with that. So they have passed many laws that are very anti-Vietnamese. In the last 10 years, there's been a lot of attacks on Vietnamese people living in Cambodia. It's very similar to what the race relations are like here in the U.S. The Cambodians absolutely hate let me not speak for all Cambodians. If you're Cambodian and you're listening to this, I'm not saying this. It's all Cambodians. Just like I'm not saying all white men in the U.S. hate people of color. But there is a, most likely a minority, but a strong culture, just like the alt-right here in the U.S., of people who have been attacking, killing, murdering Vietnamese businesses. A lot of Vietnamese people had to escape Cambodia over the last 20 years. A lot of Vietnamese businesses have shut down because they keep getting looted, robbed, riots keep going on. And unfortunately, the current leader of Cambodia is pretty anti-Vietnamese, which isn't great. To be fair, Vietnam hasn't exactly been great to Cambodia. They definitely did some really shitty things over the last thousand years. And Cambodia's certainly had a few blows of its own, but the violence really isn't going to help anybody. And it's not like that one Vietnamese guy, you know, selling fucking whatever on the street or you know in his shop is personally responsible for any of this so it's not great hopefully it gets better but currently the relations are less than ideal it's also worth noting that the border between vietnam and cambodia traditionally before the modern nation state existed was actually a lot more fluid there's a very big region where Villages are made up of lots of Vietnamese people, but also lots of Cambodians. And while they're culturally different, they're living in very close geographic space, which runs counter to the narrative that they wouldn't be able to live together otherwise, because they had been doing so for thousands of years before either side started doing uh, genocides. It's also important to note that while Vietnam absolutely did do cultural genocides against the Cambodians. The Cambodians did do similar genocides against Vietnamese people, specifically during the Pol Pot regime. Not only did he round up lots of communists and really just anyone who was educated or living in the city and kill them, he also deliberately targeted Vietnamese people. And I believe the reason the Vietnamese invaded Cambodia during the Vietnam War was because Pol Pot was going to the border and rounding up Vietnamese people to shoot. So that was their pretense. Whether or not the war ultimately was justified is a different question, but that was the reason that they originally evaded. So kind of jumping off that, although perhaps a little bit lighter, can you talk a little bit about immigration in Vietnam? Yeah, so there's not very much immigration into Vietnam, from what I can tell. While there is a lot of immigration from Vietnam, my understanding is that Vietnamese are a culturally conservative group of people. That is to say, they have progressive economic politics with their socialism, but generally they seem to think that Vietnam is for the Vietnamese people and the Vietnamese people alone, which obviously is not as progressive as an American might want it. But I understand that Vietnamese people are still quite tolerant. Obviously the state isn't tolerant of other religions, but if you are not Vietnamese and you're living in Vietnam, I think there's a level of respect afforded to you. As long as you are willing to participate in Vietnamese society, 
as far as immigration out of the country or immigration goes, there's a great deal of people that leave Vietnam to become migrant workers. And they typically go to the United States. They also go to China and Japan. And these people are technically still Vietnamese. Like they would tell you that the country they're from is Vietnam or the country they live in is Vietnam, even if they're working in a different country. And I think Vietnamese people seem to be neutral towards this group of people, but there's also a feeling of disappointment that so many people have to become migrant workers. Regardless, I think if you leave Vietnam, people don't really look down on you unless you fled Vietnam because you were a targeted group during the Vietnam War or right after the Vietnam War. So if you were one of the people who fled with the United States, like you were one of the co-conspirators, the Vietnamese people have a strong dislike towards those expats. But that's all in the past now. Like maybe an older Vietnamese person would dislike those expats, but if you're younger, I don't think there's really much of an opinion towards people who leave the country. And speaking of expats, to transition us into our final topic for the day, it wasn't until 2015 that expats were legally allowed to buy a house in Vietnam, which has a lot to do with the extremely complicated real estate system in Vietnam. Of all the videos we've done, this was by far my most researched one because it's just an incredibly complicated system. So the way real estate works in Vietnam is not like the US, it's not like most countries. Originally, back in the 50s with the land redistribution, it was entirely based on the government. The government would say, we have this land, we're gonna give it to these people, we're gonna give it to that people. The government has full say, it doesn't matter what you think, doesn't matter what that person thinks, the government just, that's just what they do. And of course they attempted this again in 1975 for 11 years until 1986. When Doi Moi came into effect in 1986 and they started to move towards a few more capitalistic ideals, they started to sell property but not the land itself. You could sell the property that was on the land. So you could buy a house, but technically you lived in that house illegally because you did not own the land. So from 1986 to 1993, basically no one really owned anything. No one owned any land. So you technically lived on your house illegally, which was problematic, which led to a lot of court cases and a lot of people being kicked off land that didn't deserve to be and that sort of thing. So in 1993, they passed the Land Reform Act. The Land Reform Act states that technically, according to the Vietnamese constitution, the government still owns all land. It is illegal to own land in the state of Vietnam. However, this land can be bought by the government. So basically, if you live on the land, the government come to say come to you and say we are going to buy your land and then they can sell that land to the developer a developer is people building on this land so they want to build a corporation a house or whatever and then they can sell those houses on the land and they are technically renting the land but the land legally is still owned by the government the big problem with the system other than it being overly complicated is the price that the government buys land is fixed by the government. It's not based on a market economy. And the government decides what land is taken. So if you're living on land 
and the government says, we want this land, you don't get a choice in that. That's just how it's going to go. And you don't get to choose how much you sell it for either. It's just, this is how much you're getting because the government has decided this is how much land is worth right now. So they give you that money, which is often extraordinarily cheap, and then they sell it for that exact same price to a developer. So then a developer is buying land for really cheap, and then they build on that land, and then they go back to those same people who have been <laughs> pushed out of the land, and they said, oh yeah, you can live here, but now the rent is three times as much. And these people don't have anywhere to go. It's basically the same thing right, that happened in San Francisco or Chicago or New York City, which is they've basically moved to parts that are very poor. The government buys the land, a developer buys it, and then they force these people to pay prices that they can barely afford. And the irony of the system is it's not really the socialism part that's a problem. It's not really the capitalist part that's a problem. The problem is that it's a two-tiered economy that just doesn't work. Like if it was entirely socialist, if it was like government owns the land, they own the houses, so like this is just how much it is, that would work. If you did the same thing with a purely capitalist, you're like, you can sell the land for whatever price you want, and you can buy the land for that same price. Now you'd still have obvious problems, as you see here in the United States, but you wouldn't be in a system where people are forced off their land for a price that's way below what it's worth. And so what's happening is developers are moving to the country because they know that they can buy land for super cheap because the government, for some reason, has not yet raised the price or is not raising the price at the same rate the market is moving, which part of the reason they're doing that is because it creates this illusion of a thriving economy because like, they're like, oh, look, all these developers are coming and we're selling all this land, blah, 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 blah. But of course, as happens in so many countries, the rich are getting richer by preying on the poor. And it's it's not great. I'm not a huge fan of it. And part of the problem is also is there's not a lot of money in housing. So most of the land being bought isn't actually being turned into housing anyways. It's being turned into corporate offices or you know corporations. It's not actually being turned into housing. So there's a serious housing problem in Vietnam, especially if you live in the city because you know, rates there are increasing drastically so it's not great it's very interesting for me because i consider myself a socialist to hear about the problems with communist systems when they're actually put into practice not that i'm a communist on paper it sounds like the system is actually working exactly as intended like it's doing its job which is to take land to have it set at a fixed price to make sure that there's not you know, rampant inflation over such an arbitrary thing as land, which should be fixed in principle anyway. It's taking land and selling it to real estate developers to develop the land, which is what you would want to do in any societies to industrialize something. And then giving it back to the people that were already there. Obviously, the, the problem here sounds to me like it's in the details. There's a great deal of corruption, as you mentioned, with the real estate companies who don't always use it to use the land to build money, or when they do build on the land, they then are allowed to do capitalism with the land anyway by selling the house to people, which is just like, well, what was the point of nationalizing land anyway? If you're just going to allow a capitalist market to exist on top of that land. Anyway, it doesn't sound like it's a great method of doing things, but... In principle, it seems to me like it would be a good idea to have more of a direct control over land because this allows you to 
develop things more efficiently. Obviously, if you aren't managing it well, if you're not allowing the people there a chance at benefiting from the development of this land and instead pushing them into slums or otherwise pushing them off of the land by arbitrarily increasing the price under a capitalist system, then you've not really done a good job as a state. But, you know, in principle, I'm not against what you would might call decommodifying land or government ownership of land. Obviously, if the system is too corrupt and there's not enough room for democratic control, then, then it becomes a problem. And I think that's exactly what you see in Vietnam. Looking at the Vietnamese constitution, great ideals. I mean, the idea that everyone has food, water, shelter, something that we should all want, and really is not that much to ask for at the end of the day. But it seems to me that Vietnam only has nationalized the land because it looks communist or socialist. But of course, in actual performance, it's quasi-capitalist, but somehow worse than like if it was just traditional like capitalism. They've somehow made something that's inherently predatory worse. <laughs> the problem is it's very hard to change this because the people who are benefiting from this, developers, are almost certainly giving lots of money to the politicians who've nationalized it. So, you know, is there going to be any reform of this kind anytime soon? I mean, I certainly hope so, but it's kind of like lobbying in the United States. A ridiculous notion from the very beginning. But who's going to back the idea of ending lobbying? No one, because that's how politicians make all their money. And so it's kind of the same thing here. Who's going to pass a land reform act where either, right, we go to a purely socialist sort of idea where government owns the land and you know everyone gets housing, food, water, that sort of thing. Or you move to a more capitalist system where people have the right to own land and then can either sell the land or buy the land at a market price. But the in-between that they've made has actually made it worse than if they had chosen one side or the other. So this kind of middling ground just is unfortunate. So, you know, Vietnam, if you're listening, work on it. Maybe they'll put in a Vietnamese Xi Jinping and, you know, have a guy in there who will just, like, arrest 300 members of government one day, like he did when he took office. And then corruption will be solved, you know? I'm, I'm kidding. All right, Brandon. Any final thoughts on Vietnam this week? Any final things you want to talk about? Uh, not that I can think of. Thank you all for listening. You can find me at AustinLugo12. You can find me at anything connected to the Nominon Project or Life Through Fiction's productions. And you can find this podcast wherever you hear podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at the Nominon Project. And please check out our Patreon page. That's Patreon slash LifeThroughFiction.com where you can find exclusive content from the Nominon Project with nothing to say, Sir Mel Hayes, and so much more. And thank you all for listening.